When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Lighty Klotz studies how we transform things from how they are to how we want them to be. In his recent book, Subtract, The Untapped Science of Less, he proves that we are far more likely to pile on the to-dos than execute stop-doings, and he shows us why and what we can do about it. Lighty is a professor at the University of Virginia, and his research on the science of design has appeared in premier academic journals, and he's written for popular press outlets like the Washington Post, Fast Company, and The Globe. Your expertise is in many different areas. You have uh, appointments in three different schools at the University of Virginia. You have this soccer career. You've written popular press books. You write academic articles. And yet you write that your obsession has long been with less. It's great to be here. And I'm, yeah. And I mean, I, when I was playing soccer, my focus was on, on soccer and that was like how I made meaning in my life. And so, but after I was done playing soccer, I, you know, had this thing that most people probably start thinking about sooner than when they're 21 years old. It's like, how am I going to make a difference in the world? How am I going to leave this place better than I found it um, and, and make a positive contribution for other people? And uh, I'd always been interested in sustainability, you know, environmental sustainability and environmental issues. That was how I thought, okay, how can I apply what I know to these issues? While I was playing soccer in college, I had majored in engineering because everybody told you that if you have any interest in engineering, you sh- you have to start out in it um, and you can't switch in. So I started out in it as a <laughs> first year college student and I just never switched out. Um, and it's been great. I I mean, I, you wouldn't want me to to build your bridge, but I learned a lot of like math and science and also more importantly, just this idea of creatively applying science to to make things better. And so applying engineering to some of these sustainability challenges, yeah, there's some really cool technology out there. You know, you can have an, a home that uses no energy, you know, to, to heat and cool. It heats and cools itself just by like passive solar heating, for example. And um, and this would drastically reduce, you know, uh, climate change emissions because so much of our our 
fossil fuel burning comes from heating and cooling buildings. It's like 40%. So it's more than automobiles and planes combined. And so I was interested in, okay, how do we create this built environment, whether it's the individual buildings that we have or the bigger cities? And it seemed like a lot of these technologies were there. Um, are there kind of underlying things that, that we could do better, or like mental shortcuts that we're using in our design processes that are leading to these possibly detrimental outcomes? And you know, so I'm, I'm close to wrapping up here on how I got there. But I, so I started out focusing on this psychology of how do you help people make better decisions? And the unique angle that I was taking with that was, okay, what about designers? Because we always apply nudging to the, the users, right? It's like, these people are the problem. Why didn't so-and-so turn the light switch off when they left the room? It's like, well, why didn't the designer design the, the room so that you didn't need a light switch and just use natural light? Um, and so we tried to apply some of the nudging to design decisions, and, and that worked as you would predict. I mean, nudges work on regular people. They also work on engineers and other designers. And what I love about it is this fundamental choice in design. It's like when we're presented with something um, that we want to change from how it is to how we want it to be, do we, you know, do we think about adding to it? Do we think about subtracting from it? And that mindset, you know, and what we ultimately found is that people default to, to adding is that it could be at the root of some of these environmental problems. If we're systematically overlooking subtraction, we're systematically overlooking a whole category of solutions, and we're systematically overlooking perhaps the more sustainable solutions. It's, it's really a transformative finding. Many people can get behind the idea that less is a desirable outcome, right? There's sort of like all the rage over the KonMari method and essentialism and this idea that we want uncluttered spaces and less clutter in our lives. But you make this really critical distinction that honestly stopped me in my tracks when I was reading your book because I never really realized that less is the outcome, but subtraction is the act of getting there. And so I want, I want to give you a chance to talk about why that distinction is so very important. And then we'll talk about how you discovered the systematic neglect of subtraction. The story that gets used a lot and, and is really the origin story of our research and because it really well illustrates the, the thought process and it's a cute story. So I was playing Legos with my son, Ezra, who was three at the time, and we're, <laughs> and we're building a bridge. And uh, the problem that we had was the bridge level. And so like one of the columns was shorter than the other column. So I did what all good dads do. I turned around behind me, grabbed the block to add to the shorter column. But by the time I had turned back around, Ezra had removed a block from the longer column. And so that, you know, I mentioned this idea, this core idea of design and is taking things from how they are to how we want them to be. And right there in front of me was this really tangible example of two different approaches to taking things from how it, how it is to, to how we wanted it to be. And one was adding, which I thought of immediately and would have followed through with never even considering the subtracting option had Ezra not shown me the, that subtracting was an option. And to be clear, Ezra's getting a big head because I'm telling the story a lot. And now he's a six-year-old going around telling his classmates, he's like, oh, I taught psychology off the clock how to subtract. And Ezra is a horrible subtractor. He's worse than me, I think. Uh, I, I don't have experimental evidence of this, but just this was the one time playing Legos that he stumbled across subtraction because he plays a lot of Legos and he was bound to subtract one time. And that led into our research studies. I, I was able to take that Lego model to Gabe Adams, who's a co-author on the study and um, just brilliant 
psychology research. And I showed it to her and she's, and I thought I'd been talking to her about these concepts of less and how it mattered for sustainability and so on and so forth. And she said, oh, well, so what you're interested in is why aren't we, why don't we subtract to make things better? And that to make things better piece is a really key distinction too. Um, and 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 it, it's exactly what I was asking. And then we pulled in a couple more people for our research team, Ben Converse and Andy Hales, who Ben's also a professor at University of Virginia. Andy's a professor at University of uh, Mississippi now. He was at Virginia at the time. And then we did all these studies. I mean, t- I counted up the hours. It's tens of thousands of hours of of study time. And uh and also studied this in different paradigms like travel itineraries and showing that people indeed defaulted to this additive um, additive phenomenon that is the unique new contribution in the book. It's like, oh, it's actually harder to think of subtraction because our, our first instinct is to think, what, what can we add? And to, to think of subtraction, we have to get beyond that and also consider what we might subtract. And speaking of books, I mean, when you let me preview the chapter in your book that talks about this, it was one of those moments where people <laughs> doing this stuff after writing the book and you're like, oh, man, I wish I had put it that way. But your distinction about how this is really this is hard. That's the thing that makes it different than kind of all the other stuff that's out there about minimalism is that this is the problem. That's why we still need these reminders is because, you know, left to our own devices, our brain doesn't think about it. And I think part of the problem is that we're sitting there thinking that it should be easier, right? I mean, McEwan's second book is uh, is effortless. I don't have you read that yet. Um, I, and I love essentialism, and I'm sure I would love effortless, but but subtracting is not effortless. Um, and so, and certainly there are effortless things that we should be doing. But when we think that this is easy, we're even less likely to put in the extra effort that's required to to do it. In this series of studies that you had that was published in Nature, what's so cool is that you show across physical design concepts and itinerary planning and idea formation that across all of those different arenas, we systematically neglect subtraction. And that, that I think is really cool because you, you have an engineering background. I'm a clinical psychologist. And yet the same challenge applies in, in all domains where we are more likely to think about adding than subtracting. And I want to talk about what your finding is in the realm of like what happens when we're under more pressure, have a higher cognitive burden, are feeling overwhelmed or distracted. What happens with our tendency to neglect subtraction? I'm so glad you brought up that this extends across, you know, we thought of it as objects. So the, the bridge, the Lego bridge or city planning um, ideas, the thoughts that are in your head, these mental models that we have, it's harder to take away than to add to what's there. In fact, that's one of the hardest places to take away. Um, and the situation. So you talk about like these social structures or your calendars, um, itineraries, it's, it's hard to take away from those too. So I'm so glad you pointed that out. Cause I think that's probably the, one of the coolest things about the finding is that it extends across all of those domains. And maybe the best way to illustrate the, you know, the finding about cognitive load and also reinforce exactly what's happening is describe one of the studies. So, you know, we had the Legos, we had travel itineraries, we had recipes, we had people looking at writing, we had this university strategic plan. 
And in all these cases, people are add, 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 add. And of course, one of the criticisms that you can level against any one of those individual studies is, well, that's just strategic plans. That's just what people do when they're revising strategic plans as they suggest 90% additions and only 10% subtractions. And it's a fair criticism of any specific study. So we, we wanted to find a, a way to test this that wasn't um, that people didn't have any practice with. Uh, so we developed these grids that you could display on a computer screen. And it basically was a, a pattern, a grid pattern that was broken into four quadrants. And the quadrants were symmetrical, except for extraneous marks in one of the quadrants. And we would tell people, make this symmetrical, left to right, top to bottom. And basically, we had a, ver- a variety of the patterns, but the solution in all of them was to either take away the redundant grids from one quadrant or add marks to three quadrants. And we told people, hey, look, you've got to do this in as few a clicks possible. So in this case, it wasn't like Lego Ezra's bridge where this is just as good one way or the other. It was, you're going to not get the right answer if you don't think to subtract. And, you know, people, of course, some people got that right, but still a, a huge percentage of people were overlooking subtraction on those grids. And then once we had those grids, we're able to do other things to see, okay, well, what makes this worse? What makes this better? And the the cognitive load um, task that you're talking about is like, okay, the, the basic finding on like more cognitive load that they're under was by having a scroll of numbers come across the, the bottom of the screen while they're solving this grid task. And so in that case, you these numbers would be coming across. People had to press an F on the keyboard every time a five came across. So it's the equivalent of texting when driving, right? Or like trying to multitask. You've got two things going on. And the theory being that if this default to adding is kind of our, our, the factory default in our brains of what we go to, we'd be even more likely to go to that when we're under this cognitive load. And sure enough, that's what we found. Um, And so, okay, that's that's a lot of fun with grids and numbers scrolling across a computer screen and fancy words like cognitive load. But what does that mean for for life? (laughs) Like, well, this this tool that we need most when we're overloaded is hardest to access (laughs) when we're overloaded. So it's this really dangerous kind of reinforcing loop that could be happening where it's like, okay, I'm stressed out. And that's the or I've got a lot of stuff going on, I've got a lot on my mind, that's the time that you're least likely to think about, okay, how can I subtract, which is precisely the thing that you need to do to, to relieve this problem that you've got. So yeah, it's a, it's problematic. Yeah. And that's why I think the science is so important. Cause as you, as you just pointed out, like if we think that subtracting should be effortless, and we don't make a more deliberate move to consider it when we're overwhelmed, which is exactly when it's hardest to access. And so for people whose lives are super busy, you know, it can be that much more important to say, okay, here's where I know that I'm going to be less likely to consider taking things off my plate, but it's actually the most important time. And then I want to sort of ask, how do you understand why we're so inclined to add when sometimes subtracting really is the better option? Yeah. And I mean, as you and your listeners know, there's no kind of one why answer to this. And we certainly don't have any experiments to to back it up. That would be impossible. But when you think about we've got this wiring that we have in our brains, it's, it's, it's served us well in the past for some reason. That's why it's like this. And so if you just think of it from an evolutionary standpoint, well, what has helped us 
you know, survive, pass down our genes to the next generation. One obvious thing is, you know, our desire to acquire food, um, which other psychology researchers like Stephanie Preston at Michigan show that that also extends to physical things, even useless physical things. She's got this really great task where she has people fill up a virtual shopping cart and people overfill the shopping cart, then they're challenged to get it down and they can't subtract to get down the shopping cart. And, you know, this, this desire to acquire things is, you know, consistent with hoarding disorder even, um, but also consistent with, you know, just our desire to eat on the other hand. And so that's something that we have to override. Again, it's not impossible to override any of these things. We don't go around eating everything just because we're, we're wired to eat, but um, it's, there could be well, an evolution. sometimes when we're stressed out, we do. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Speak for yourself. I, um, I'm starving. Uh, yeah. And uh, the, the, another more surprising to me, evolutionary one that I came across was this desire to display competence. And so basically, we want to show that we can interact with the world. Otherwise, we feel helpless. Uh, feeling like we can interact with the world is a really important thing. And we can capably make change. And adding it seems to me is it's easier to display competence through adding when Ezra builds a Lego structure. It's like, Oh, good job, Ezra. You made a Lego structure. Everybody can see what he did that day. And, and he can see what he did that day. Um, when you take something away, uh, if he cleans up his room or just maybe cleans up one thing from his room, I might not notice that he's, <laughs> he's subtracted. Um, or if you take away a block from the Legos, um, people will notice the bridge, but they might not notice that you subtracted to get there. And it's the same in the in the real world. When you take away, you know, the 10 minutes of this podcast that don't see the light of day, nobody's gonna gonna know that we did that. That's not going to be a reminder of our competence. And um, but I was surprised about competence, how biological that is. Um, and the example that really struck home for me was bowerbirds. And so these are the birds where the males build ceremonial nests and then the females go around and, and look for the nests that they like best. And that's how they decide which male to mate with. And you're like, oh, well, that's fine. Nests are for shelter. And so it would make sense that you would want to mate with somebody who can build a good shelter. But then the females don't even use the nests for shelter. They then go off and build a shelter and raise the kids, the, the little bowerbirds in that shelter. And so the whole point of these ceremonial nests in the first place is just showing that the males can interact effectively with the world and, you know, displaying competence. And so that's also another evolutionary thing that could be kind of contributing to this, you know, mental shortcut that we now have where we automatically think about what we can add. Yeah. And I think too, that there's, so like for survival purposes that we want to add calories or, or connections to peers, then there's mm -hmm. showing competence. And then I think there's this sort of like, and I think that your DC itinerary piece of your nature study really reveals that tendency that we're so afraid we're going to miss out that we pack it in and we don't, and we end up, <laughs> at least for me, when I pack it in, I just don't enjoy anything. And I certainly mm -hmm. don't do a great job. But there's this tension of like, well, if I say no and I don't show up, then I'm going to miss out on a meaningful piece of life. And I think that certainly happens in roles like parenting. Yeah, that's true. The itinerary study is one of my favorites because we were we were doing all these example studies with like Legos and ingredients and words. And we're like, let's make one that people should just subtract from that. It's obvious. And so we created this itinerary study that you're in Washington, D.C. And I think there were 12 or 14 different things you did, like big things, like each one of these things was visit the Smithsonian and go to the Washington Monument and then like have dinner at this five star restaurant. So 
like each of these things was, it could be a full day activity. And so they had 12 of these things and there's this drag and drop interface where you could add more stuff on, or you could just take it out and give yourself more time at, at certain events. And people by and large added to that itinerary. And, you know, so I, I do like the, the idea that it could be just this fear of fear of missing out in that case, as much as, you know, I don't know how much competence it shows to, to show that you're going to all of these things. Although I don't know, maybe a little bit with like the, you can, that's like 14 Instagram photos that you can take, right. If you, uh, if you go to all these places and that's a little bit of displaying competence, but, um, but yeah, the, the fear of, um, the fear of missing out certainly plays a role there too. But that was a, that's a classic example for me anyway, of how this applies to how we behave in, in social situations and how we kind of default to adding to make those better too. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's really notable that by by the time you had designed that experiment, you were actually trying to get people to subtract, but people were still highly unlikely to subtract. And I think this comes through in your book that you're not necessarily advocating that everybody only subtract quite the opposite. But what you're really encouraging people to do is to be more deliberate about considering it as an option to a better outcome. Yeah. And recognizing the the you know, after we think of it, there are some thinking traps that we can fall into that might make us not choose it, even if it might be the better outcome, you know, so, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm agnostic on adding versus <laughs> subtracting. That's not the thing here. These should be complementary approaches to change. In fact, like the binary thinking there, which is like, oh, if you add, then you can't subtract is, is a huge part of the problem. If you subtract, then you can't add. Um, and I think if we could shift the perspective on these two two things, they're not opposites. I mean, some things are opposites and it, it helps to recognize them, but these are not opposites. And they're in fact complementary approaches to change. So then if you could think, oh, well, I, I added to I added this task to make my parenting life better. I wonder if I could subtract something to make my parenting life better. Then we then we wouldn't have this problem. Yeah. I like that it's very yin and yang. It's sort of like yeah. considering both and finding balance. And I think that there's something so lovely about that is, is like recognizing that we tend to default more to adding leaves us really heavy on one side. So if we can be more deliberate about taking away, then we can be more successful in balancing over time. One thing I wanted to ask you is that you make this really great point in the book that saying no is not the same as subtracting. So I wanted to give you a chance to, to talk about that. Because I'm always proud of myself when I say no, but it's not the same. <laughs> well, saying no is good. Yeah, just don't don't think that you've subtracted, Yael. Um, so the <laughs> <laughs> and you're in good company because one of the other co-authors, Ben Converse, we're two years into this research, and uh, he comes up to me. He's like, "Hey, this is working. The research. I'm taking the research to heart. I'm getting some personal benefits out of it." My department chair asked me to be on this committee, and I said no. Congratulations, Ben. But uh, it doesn't strike me as you subtracting something because that wasn't something that you were already doing. You just didn't add. And you know, this we see this everywhere though. People will be like, oh yeah, subtracting CO2 emissions. So like let's make our buildings more efficient or let's spew less CO2 into the atmosphere. It's like, yes, but that's not actually like subtracting CO2 from the atmosphere, which is another part of what we need to be doing. So anyway, Ben, uh, you know. Ben had me there to explain that to him. And I think he was kind of annoyed, but he's always really helpfully skeptical with my ideas. So I, I felt like I'd return the favor there. But his his partner, also a psychology professor, has this really cool tool to get past this. So she will actually like look at her calendar and say, oh, you know, I've been going to this meeting every 
week for a year and it's provided marginal benefit at best. So I'm going to subtract it. And then when she subtracts it, she also leaves the thing on her calendar. It's like, okay, this window of time brought to you by your subtraction. And so in doing that, she like shows her competence at subtracting. And it's like a reminder because another disadvantage that subtracting faces is that, you know, we walk around the world surrounded by these reminders of adding that has made things better. And the subtracting that has made things better is invisible, like a, you know, a tidy closet, unless you saw it before it was tidy. You're just like, oh, that's a tidy closet. You don't recognize all the cleaning that went into making it that way. So so uh, Ben's partner leaves this as a reminder, and I think it probably makes her more likely to think of subtracting going forward. But yeah, uh, I think the key distinction there, and it's not, you know, saying no has to be part of our repertoire of options, but so does, so does taking away. Even if you, the best you can possibly hope for, even if you say no to everything else going forward is to maintain your current state. And if the problem is that you're overloaded, that's not gonna, <laughs> it's not gonna help. Yeah, exactly. So you collaborate with a lot of people in, in psychology, and I'm, I'm just curious sort of how those collaborations came about and how you sort of, because your background is in engineering, but you also do a lot of behavioral science in your writing and in your thinking. And so how, how did you sort of land on that interdisciplinary approach specifically in the field of behavioral science? One thing that got edited out of the book is just like a personal, like I, I got a ton of help from a clinical psychologist. Like I have well, I guess I, I don't know, I guess I had obsessive compulsive disorder and it was like one of these things where I didn't really notice and it wasn't, um, wasn't like keeping everything clean or anything like that. It was more just the mental part and, you know, which, which worked fine until you get to these problems where they're like, there's no answer, right? It's like, do I, can I be 100% sure that I don't have AIDS? And you're like, yeah. okay, well, I can get a test, but that's only whatever percent. This happened when I was like 25 and I went to a clinical psychologist and, you know, just, ultra success story in terms of like helping with the cognitive behavioral therapy plus medication. And like, I haven't had to deal with that since. I mean, it was really bad when I had to deal with it just mentally. I, I didn't write it into the book, I think. Um, but, you know, there's an argument to be made that that's what got me interested in behavioral science in the first place, um, because it's like, oh, look, <laughs> our brains are doing funny things that we don't understand or that seem irrational. And um, there's this whole science of, of dealing with them and understanding why that happens. So anyway, um, if you think that story is useful, I'd be open to sharing it. It's not one that I've ever told on a podcast, but I think it's really important for, I mean, I share it with my graduate students and stuff like that, because I want them to know that, you know, mental health issues are just as serious as physical health issues. And especially since that time of life, it's really, yeah. um, you know, it, at least from what I understand, it seems like some of these things kind of show up around that early adulthood, like 20 to 25 span. And so I think the grad students are often dealing with this um, yeah. for the first time. So anyway, yeah. So it's not like I haven't ever shared it before, but I've just never told the story in a succinct way. And, uh, you know, so I did a ton of reading about psychology, starting with the popular press books that seem to start in, you know, in earnest with like, I mean, Dan Ariely's work was really influential for me, of course, like Freakonomics and then Thaler's and Sunstein's Nudge and, and those kind of books. And, you know, as a scholar, I'd read those books and then I'd be like, oh, I'm going to go look at the paper. And so then I'm, I'm less bound by the the boundaries of a discipline. So that's always been helpful. And I've I, 
try to do a good job of like, okay, yes, this is what civil engineering says about this, but like, what are other fields saying about it? And we've always applied physics and chemistry. And now that psychology is being used to try to make the world a better place and, uh, you know, with nudging, but also with just all these applied behavioral science organizations, engineering should be contributing to that. And I don't think that engineering should take that over, but as with our track record and history of applying science creatively, why aren't we, you know, more intentionally creatively applying science and contributing to that effort? And so I think that's when, when the behavioral scientists work with me, that's one thing that I can kind of offer them. And also, you know, and this is something that Ben and Gabe and Andy would say, my co-authors on the subtraction research is that, you know, there's no way I could have done this research that's in chapter one without them. But at the same time, they would not have gotten the question without me. Um, and it's this really basic psychological question, but it's not something that, you know, was kind of grounded in judgment and decision making. It was more grounded in my understanding of design. Um, so, yeah, that's a long winded way of saying kind of how that has merged together. And um, but it's been I mean, it's been the most rewarding part of my academic thinking uh, over the last 10 years, and I expect it to be so going forward. And I'm just so grateful for all the people who have, uh, yourself included, yeah, who've, who've entertained the behavioral science ideas of somebody who is not trained in behavioral science. I think it's so, I think it's really cool, the, the sort of interdisciplinary approach for a variety of reasons. But one of the things that comes to mind is, is just, I think in, in design and building design, for example, it's a little bit easier to concretely see like what happens when you add or subtract, whereas in these more abstract social role scenarios or day-to-day decisions that people make to try to make a happier, more functional life, it's a, it's harder to put your finger on it. And so some of the ways that you understand decision-making in the more physical space can be really informative in this arena that I'm in, which is a lot more abstract. So the kinds of things that you're able to learn and then you know, experiment with whether they apply in social roles is, is so, it's so powerful. Um, and I think that's exactly what, what you've been able to do. Yeah. Well, thank you. And one of the things, you know, we talked about all these disadvantages subtracting faces, but you can add something without understanding what's already there, right? Um, so you can add medications to somebody's portfolio of medications that they're already taking just by understanding how they're currently behaving. And you're like, okay, well, this medication should steer you in a certain direction. But to subtract, you need to like understand what's there. Maybe, maybe I mean, medications is, is one example, um, but you could think about this with systemic racism, which is the example I use in the book, which is like, to remove this thing, you need to you need to see it as there. And when you're talking about these complex systems, it's hard to understand them. And it's hard to, you know, I think this is people always ask me like, well, what's something that you've learned in the past year? And I think, you know, understanding more about systemic racism has helped me find it in more places and you can't subtract it without, (laughs) without first seeing it. And that challenge is, is hard enough in cities where the stuff's there right in front of you, but it's even harder in these social situations where you kind of have to, I don't know, have some expertise or training or, you know, just real intentional thought into what's going on here. What's the system? And to be able to subtract things from it, you need to see that. I mean, you can you can add diversity without uh, without subtracting systemic racism. That's like you can just bolt that on to the system that already exists. But to get rid of the systemic racism, you actually have to understand the system itself. Yeah. 
I, I think that's so critical. And, and I love that you're making that point. And it, so there's sort of like the system wide way of looking at, you know, what's what exists and, and how can we make it better? And can we consider subtraction as one option that might not be as obvious a default setting in our brains? But then also, you know, if you look at your own life to be able to kind of be more deliberate and say, you know, how are things going? You know, when in my day to day, I often think about adding, but could I also think about subtracting what isn't working? What in what ways could I make my life better by by taking things away? And I wonder if maybe we could just spend a little bit of time about tips that people could use for subtraction. So tying it into the experiments, we found that cues help in the experiments. So the straightforward tip is to put cues, you know, reminders to subtract as close as possible to the decision that you're actually going to make. And, um, you know, so these cues were something that we found in our research to be effective. You know, what we found in when we were doing the grid studies, for example, is that when we remind people that they can add and subtract, that this increased rates of subtracting, but not rates of adding. So for our research studies, the purpose was showing, hey, people aren't thinking of subtracting. But as a practical tool, it's like, okay, if you can think when you're doing your to-do list, okay, what are the things that I can stop doing? You're not gonna overlook subtraction in that instance. I, I hope that people who read my book just get better at subtracting across all domains. And I think, you know, some of the feedback I've gotten is that that's the case. But if um, it, we didn't necessarily find that a reminder to subtract on the grids, for example, made people more likely to subtract on Legos. And so you need to put, you know, maybe after the podcast, a good exercise would be, okay, think about ways that you could subtract in your life and how can you give yourself reminders to actually consider it. And so if it's, you know, you're parenting and you're, you know, you have a, a daily meeting with your partner. Well, bless you for figuring out how to schedule that. Maybe it's like more like me and my wife when we have a, a weekly meeting. <laughs> and, but in those meetings, it's like, okay, in addition to thinking of, oh, we need to do swim lessons, we need to do uh, buying school supplies. Um, what can we stop doing that we've been doing? And so if you're just put those cues in place when you're thinking about subtracting, you're more likely to follow through with them at the time of the choice. So that's the the number one takeaway. And that works, you know, across parenting, across your personal productivity, across your, your work life. Um, and that's, that's my number one recommendation. Yeah. So like a stop doing list, a stop doing list. So, yeah. So maybe the stop doing list is, you know, it, as part of your to do's, but also, if you're applying this to ideas, because we, you know, the stop doing, I guess, works for social situations. But if you're talking about the ideas in your head, it's like you've got this time for intaking information, right? You're listening to podcasts, you're reading books, you're talking to interesting colleagues. But also, do you have time to kind of synthesize what you've um, what you've come across? Or have you set aside time to kind of rethink what's in your brain and be like, OK, you know, this thing that I once thought was like foundational knowledge is proving not to be true. And so I'm going to subtract that. So putting in place these opportunities to do that and to remind yourself to do it um, can can be really effective as a reminder or a cue. Yeah. And I think embedding those kind of cues in different places in your life, whether it's you meeting with your spouse once a week or, um, you know, a reminder in your calendar to to sit down and really think about it, knowing that it's so easy to neglect subtracting as an option really can make daily life a little bit better, less overwhelming, and more deliberate about what you do include in your days. 
And before you go, I loved in the chapter on sustainability that you talk about one of my favorite books, I'm sure many people's favorite books, The Lorax, and you walk readers through your thinking in, in sort of being more deliberate about subtractive changes at like a global level. So I wonder if you can offer us some wisdom on how we can have a positive impact by doing less. Yeah. Yeah. I love, I'm glad you liked the Lorax. Uh, and there's this like really highbrow environmental argument that, you know, brilliant science writers, Charles Mann talks about it in The Wizard and the Prophet and uh, John McPhee, a great nonfiction writer talks about it in Encounters with the Archdruid. And it's this tension between people who think the way to make the world better is by like kind of rolling back human progress and, you know, not overshooting limits and people like the, you know, techno optimists. It's like, okay, just keep innovating and, and the, the world will become better. And uh, these are both well-meaning groups. Uh, they're, they're people who, you know, they think legitimately that this is the best way to make the world better. This isn't like climate change deniers because they're, you know, making profits from oil or something like that. So and the, the point that all these writers make, Dr. Seuss included, is that there's um, oftentimes there's not a lot of overlap between these groups, which both basically want the same thing, which is like a flourishing environment for humans. And uh, but subtracting, I think, is one way to kind of make both of those groups happy. Right. Because the techno optimist, you're doing something right. This isn't effortless. This isn't sitting back and just kind of. Um, letting things be, or even like rolling things back to how they were 50 years ago, you're, you're intentionally going around trying to make the world better, but you're doing so by taking away. And for the, the other group, the, the group that's always warning about like, look, we're overshooting planetary boundaries. I mean, climate change is one of them, but there's a great science paper that talks about the planetary boundaries and how many of them we've like already overshot. And you've already overshot these planetary tipping points, the only option is to take things away. And so both groups can kind of get behind this. Now that's the real like highbrow argument. And I, you know, that's why I wanted to use the Lorax for it because it's actually a, a relatively simple argument. And, um, and because Dr. Seuss is brilliant, but the, how, how does this manifest into other climate issues or, or environmental issues? And so one is just like overconsumption, right? It's like anytime we have more stuff than we need, there's an environmental impact to that. And it's, you know, part of contributing to this problem. But, you know, specific to climate change, literally the problem now is that there's more parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere than scientists think is safe to be there. And it's, you know, like we're probably 420 parts per million and we're supposed to be at 350 parts per million. And so we do need to stop adding, right? We do need to create more efficient buildings and we should um, try to have electric vehicles. But at some point, we've got to subtract CO2 out of the atmosphere too. And, you know, we're thinking about that more and more. Um, and, you know, planting trees is one of the least controversial ways to do it. And that can certainly help pull CO2 out of the atmosphere. But for a long time, we just kind of thought about this with the not adding mindset and that that delay has really hurt. And so I think, you know, as we try to address climate change, kind of coming to it with the same mindset that created the problem, which is like add, 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 uh, we're not going to have a great chance of, of resolving it. But if we can, like with all of these other issues that we've talked about, see subtraction as an option and like give it a fair evaluation, then we will have more of our, our arsenal to to work with as we try to take on this incredible um, planetary challenge. 
And then do you have recommendations for subtractive changes that people individually can make? Don't overlook subtraction. Um, and that's really what I hope for people. I mean, I think if you talk about it in, the, in terms of climate change, one way that I think we're overlooking it is just our investments. Um, and so one of the examples, I, I used a story in the book of apartheid South Africa and how um, divestment, which in this case, like, okay, stop investing in companies that are doing business in South Africa. And the University of California system, like divested, I think, $11 billion, um, or maybe it was the state of California. And then companies all over the world started divesting in South Africa. And that, of course, there had long been organized resistance to apartheid, but that divestment really was like kind of the final blow to bringing down that, that oppressive system. Um, and it's, you know, Desmond Tutu, who was very involved in that, obviously, is now taking up this idea of divesting from in climate change, right? So it's like, okay, yes, put the solar panels on your roof and, uh, you know, make your home energy efficient, but also like look at your portfolio. And if you really care about climate change, just consider what you're investing in. And if your investments are propping up this thing that you're trying to, to deal with in your, your other actions, then maybe you could take that money away from climate change, which is something that's something that I got, I thought of while writing the book. I had always known of divestment, but I was like, oh, this is something that I'm not doing yet. And so I, so I did it. And I mean, one of the great things about subtracting, we talked, this is probably a good one to end on, actually. Um, we've talked so much about the disadvantages of subtracting and how it's, a, we're, it's systematically harder to think of. We don't notice it. There's no reminders. Uh, it's, you know, you've got to see the whole system to be able to subtract. But once you do subtract something, then you're left with the improved situation plus whatever you've taken away. So when Ezra subtracted the block, he had two extra blocks than I would have had with my bridge solution. And when you divest something, you've still got that money and you just invested in something else. So you've made the subtraction to make the situation better but, and you've got the better situation plus you've got the, the thing that you've subtracted. So that's, um, we'll, we'll end on a positive note for subtraction. Yeah. And, you know, if you take something out of your calendar, you have that time to do something that you do value or, or to do nothing at all, which can be valuable as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I just want to end with a quote from your book, because I think it really does capture this this theme that you're getting at, which is less may be the key to more good for more people for more time. And I think what you're advocating consistently throughout this interview and throughout your writing is consider subtraction as an option and be deliberate about considering it because it may not come as naturally, um, but it is a very powerful decision-making tool. Yeah, that's beautifully put. Chatting with me today, I know that on August 27th, folks can check out a one-day event on the science of habits and behavior change where you and I will both be presenting. And for deeper insights into the art of subtracting, folks should definitely pick up your book. It's it's really transformative of the way that you look at the world and decision-making in general. So it's a great read. Thank you, Lydie, for joining me. Yeah, thank you. And that's one of the downsides of virtual commuting is that we won't get to meet in person on that August 27th event. But yeah, I'm looking forward to it. And I'm looking forward to hearing your talk. And thank you so much for this interview. It was I, I really loved the questions that you got to. I've been doing a lot of these and it's fun to have somebody who can balance the understanding of the science with the, the links to the practical applications. So thanks so much, Al. Oh, thank you. <laughs>